Hello, listeners. On this show, I talk with everyday African Americans who are able to transform their passions and struggles into their dreams. I'm your host, Moses Tillman Young, and welcome to the Black Gold Podcast. In this episode, I interview Aiko Bathia. She is the founder of Rare Coaching and Consulting, as well as an attorney, leader, team builder, and New York Times bestselling author. Through her work, she coaches leaders and organizations to remove the internal and external barriers to inclusion, allowing them to understand each other as people, colleagues, and teams in more connective ways. In our conversation, Aiko and I discuss what makes an effective leader, learning how to utilize action for things that are necessary instead of acting out of impulse, and what work-life balance really is like for the in-the-trenches entrepreneur. Today with me on the Black Gold Podcast, I have uh, Aiko Bethea. And she is the founder of Rare Coaching and Consulting. It's an organization that she created that helps people become leaders. And also she helps them to become better people overall, not just in business, but in their personal lives as well. So, Aika, welcome to the Black Gold Podcast. Hey, Moses. Thank you for having me. Absolutely. So, like, I'm curious, why leadership development? Why was that the thing that you would say you have landed on to become your own uh, business? So, I think that uh, a lot of my work centers on equity and people of color. And I realized that in order to change organizations and the experience that many of us have in the workplace, we really need to scale up and elevate current leaders. And I think we need it to be able to, or there's, it's important also for workplaces to see people of color as the trainers, as the coaches, as the subject matter experts. Otherwise, you're just going to get more of the same perspective over and over again without finding new approaches and new ways to think about how they um, lead their teams and the culture in their workplaces. So in terms of leadership, what would you say is the number one thing that people would assume is correct? but they usually end up finding out later on down the line that it was completely wrong. Is there a, a sort of a myth of leadership that people have whenever they think of the word leader, they assume this certain thing? Yeah, you know what? Maybe a couple of things. One, I think that people sometimes buy the story that people are either born leaders or they're not. You either are or you aren't. When we know that people can learn to be really strong leaders and build a skill set. The other thing is, I think automatically, whether we say it or not, if you ask many people about who do they see as a leader, they will describe somebody who's not a person of color and who's likely not a woman, definitely not a woman of color. So I think sometimes there's this presumption of even what a leader looks like and who's able to be one and who's not. Maybe the third thing is leadership being about knowing all the right answers and being able to direct and tell people what to do, whereas leaders are more so folks who are willing to say what I don't know and to defer to people who do have that subject matter expert. So leaders are people who have a learner mindset because we know that no one knows everything. But I think back in the day, it used to be this expectation that the leader was a knower and had all the answers. And now we have gotten so much savvier that a workplace or folks are more willing to push back. And I think it takes a lot of stress off the leaders to be able to say, I don't know, but you know what? I've got this amazing team that's going to help me to figure it out. 
instead of carrying the whole weight of thinking that they need to have the right answer. So it's the idea that leaders need to have a cabinet of people that they can depend upon to give them sound insight and advice on certain issues that they need to resolve or they need to take certain steps towards certain actions. So leaders should depend on others uh, that they trust and that have sound insight, sound of mind that they can then utilize their advice and go forward from there. Sure, sure. Mm -hmm. So in terms of becoming a better leader, how do you find those people that are willing to, I'm I'm assuming that a a big part of leadership, uh, as you said, is admitting that you don't know everything. And how do you find people that are willing to point out your flaws? So I think that it is about the way that you train people to engage with you. So sometimes leaders will ask for critical feedback. Please let me know, give me feedback. But then if somebody gives them feedback and they don't like it, they may bark at them, right? Or may punish them. And so now you've said, hey, I would love for you to uh, be honest with me, for you to give me candid feedback. But then your behavior trains everyone, not only that person who you barked at or punished, but anyone else who was in the room or even learns about that. You've trained them now that actually, I really don't want honesty, even though I said it. But when you're asking for it and someone is providing you with that critical feedback and you're appreciative, you're learning, you're curious about it, you may not agree with it, but you're curious about it and you incent them to give you that feedback. Now it's going to be much more welcomed. And more people and people are going to be pro- more proactive about saying things that maybe they normally would not tell a leader. And so you're also like well known within the uh, diversity, inclusion, and equality space as well. Mm-hmm. And uh, I even did some work for the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation. In an organization like that, what were some of the things that you, as a person leading a team of people, would have to encourage them to speak up on in terms of allowing them, giving them a space to talk about their concerns or talk about anything else that they might be wanting to do, any projects they want to see accomplished. What what were some of those things that you would say came up pretty frequently in those situations? Hmm. Let's see, I think probably even beyond working at the Gates Foundation, but in a range of different leadership roles I've had, I think the hardest thing for people to give me feedback on or to speak up about it has been just to give me critical feedback. I think it's hard for anybody to give their leader or their boss critical feedback because this person is overseeing your performance review, your raises, the opportunities that you get. And So I think that regardless of what the feedback has been or the ask has been, giving me critical feedback has probably been the most difficult for people and not because I'm unique, but because if I'm their leader, right? And I think sometimes we have to remember, leaders have to remember that just because we're asking for feedback or we're saying we're open to it doesn't mean that we're creating the space or the environment that encourages people to feel safe enough to give you that feedback. And there's more studies now where um, there's some work by Megan Ritz that talks about the optimism bubble. So leaders, and this is based on research and empirical data, that the higher people go up in an organization, the more they are in this optimism bubble where, one, their perception is that there's talking less than they actually are. Their perception is that their team members and others are talking way more than the team members actually are. And the idea that things are going way better than they actually are. So just the fact that leaders will perpetually have this idea of these things being going so much better and people being invited and actually voicing themselves much more, it means that we probably have to be more quiet than we think we are, like actually double up on it. We probably have to listen so much more so that people have more space to be talking. And we may have to have more of a grain of salt about 
how well things, how well we perceive things to really be. So in terms of being in those situations, listening more, that's a really important ingredient in terms of having people, leading a team of people in a way that is effective. So then that way they are comfortable and secure approaching you about different things that is going on with them that they would also like to see happen within the organization to propel it forward. Mm-hmm. Yep. Yep. You just have to constantly create those moments where you're intentionally asking people to give you input. And it can't be like me uh, speaking to you as if you're smiling my teeth. Moses, give me feedback. I'm always open to it. Really, in the beginning, you want to be able to give people more narrow spaces or topics to give you feedback on. Because if you just come up to your direct report, always give me feedback, it's harder because they don't, it's harder for people to gauge versus if I said, Hey, Moses, I have this uh, presentation tomorrow. I'm wondering if you can look out for the way that the pace that I'm talking or some of the facts and figures I put in there, because now it gives you something to hone into. And as we go along and each time you give me feedback, I'm incenting it and responding in appreciation. Then by the time I have that wide open, please give me feedback. You're going to be more likely to think of things maybe I didn't specifically ask you about, but it can be really over an overload and a big step of trust to ask somebody just to give you any kind of feedback, right? especially direct reports or folks. So you really want to be able to make it targeted. And as you go along, people will feel more safer and willing to proactively give you feedback about a range of things. So would you suggest that leaders have almost like an office hours kind of place where people can it's like, I'm going to be here at this period of time. Come over here. Let's have a chat uh, about anything. And yeah. Absolutely, Moses. As a matter of fact, I would say, so office hours are just always great to have, period. But for leaders, having this totally separate from when somebody has performance management time, right? Sometimes you find leaders giving in someone's performance management session and then telling the employee, okay, do you have any feedback for me? Like, unlikely you're going to do that in the same moment of a performance management or, or even worse yet, before you give them their performance management review and ask for feedback. Instead, you want to have <coughs> a regular cadence where, hey, Moses knows and my team knows every quarter we're going to have a 30-minute check-in and that 30-minute check-in is just going to be for you to give me feedback. And that means when I'm not going to talk to you about your performance, I'm only going to be curious and ask questions. And you know that in that moment, I'm looking for you to tell me what's working or what's not. And sometimes I'll tell people, hey, this question works really well. One thing to tell that you, that I, that you want me to stop doing, start doing and continue doing. And when you set it up that way, that means that you are automatically giving the direct report permission and setting an expectation that you're going to tell me something I'm doing that I need to stop doing. So in some way, giving me some critical feedback, but I'm also saying, what should I continue doing? What's working? And maybe what I should start doing that would really help you that I haven't thought about. So by framing it in that way, everyone knows, hey, this is an expectation. I expect you to actually tell me something I should be getting better at. But having it carved out on the calendar, whether it's like each quarter or whatever, everybody knows that time period is going to come up. And so I don't have to remember later. You don't have to feel afraid when I ask you out of nowhere because we know that this has always been set ahead of time. So it's a great way to create it, bring that in as a part of the culture, the team culture. And in doing that, can you then also use what you have gleaned from those situations in conjunction with any of the quarterly reports that you have with your people in terms of the performance reviews that you do with them. Can that also then inform those reviews or should each one of those things be separate unto themselves, office hours apart from the performance reviews? Oh, absolutely. They're separate, especially if you're asking your team to give you critical feedback. You don't want those to be overlapped because there's a fear, right, of saying, oh, it's around the same time as performance management. I'm not going to tell my boss something really bad. 
So you really want those to be separate and folks to know that giving the feedback is just a run of the show, a regular thing that we do. But it has nothing to do with performance management, except maybe you would tell somebody, man, that feedback you gave me was really great. I was glad that you used your voice, right? And you circle back when someone gives you feedback for the team. If everybody's doing their quarterly input sessions with you at the same time, you can say, hey, these are some themes I heard about things that are working for you all or things I'm going to actually change because it seems like it's not helping anyone. So now folks understand they weren't just shooting darts at a, at a board for no reason, but you actually listened and now you're being responsive and now this is what you're going to do about it. So it's validating that they gave you that feedback. Yeah, and so in doing that, what you then do, as you said, it, it becomes an office or an organization where people can share information more easily because whenever you do do that, there's a certain level of trust that if something were to go down, if say I was in the meeting and the person, like the meeting didn't get recorded or something like that, I can then come to you and say, hey, this thing happened over here. And so that way I can do that without the fear of you barking back at me or anything wrong happening in terms of me being at risk of losing my, my job. That's right. That's right. And the more experiences you have like that, the more you're going to trust, oh man, I can also share this with her. Man, when I told her that and I was kind of, I went out on a limb to give that feedback or to share that with her. She was really chill with it, responsive. There's no punishment associated with it. Oh, okay. I can tell her this too. And also it allows them if, you know, they're doing any type of peer mentoring coaching, they'll say, hey, you know what? I gave her feedback before too. And you know what? She really did listen. I think you should just tell her because she was responsive, listen, and I didn't get any blowback from that. So that's how you can permeate the culture. So would you say that a leader needs to listen more than, than they speak and they need to be open to the concerns of the people that are around them, but they should also know how to balance or how to compartmentalize the concerns and criticisms that are about them and their performance and also separate that from what their team is doing and the effectiveness and the productivity of that team apart from those reviews and those comments. Mm. I just want to clarify the last part. One is that I think the simple way of saying it is that a leader should not have a punitive response to their team members giving them critical feedback, whether it be in performance management, whether it be any other way. When someone is coming, usually a direct report, they're in a very vulnerable situation. If they come to trust you and actually give you critical feedback, they're stepping out on a limb. So knowing that already and recognizing the power difference, we're not going to have responses punitive. Not if you want to actually impact the culture. And it doesn't mean that you are going to agree with what they're saying, but you're going to respond in such a way where there's still this level of respect and appreciating and recognizing, you know, the courage it takes just to give your leader feedback. So don't punish them for speaking their mind. That's what you're saying. Absolutely. Absolutely. But you may coach them, right? So <laughs> there's a difference between someone coming and, you know, we're in a meeting and Moses, you, you know, roll out and say, you are lying, you're lying, blow, or something like that. So I might have a coaching moment with you and say, hey, okay, the how. Okay, I understand what you were saying in terms of what you didn't agree with, but let's talk about the how. And so we might have a coaching moment around it, but definitely not you coming and telling me, hey, this was blah, 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 and me saying, me barking at you for just sharing that with me. So how did you get into the, the leadership development space? Who would you say, like, helped you to become who you are? Did you have any specific mentors? Oh, wow. So many people, so many people. I wouldn't even be able to name everyone. I could go all the way back to the high school guidance council, right? So <laughs> I think that the list is really um, 
it's really, I mean, it's infinite. Just all of the, every, even the bosses who weren't so great made me want to go into leadership development because I thought about, wow, the impact on me and my team and other people because this leader is whatever, fill in the blank, lack of transparency, command and control approach, not understanding the impact of words they use in terms of that impact on people of color, impact on women, impact on Black people. Like all of those things may think, okay, I need to, I'm in a space where I would be able to maybe impact this because we shouldn't be having these type of experiences where we're in the workplace. You know, you're going to be traumatized or disrespected and leaders being actually rewarded when their how in terms of how they treat their employees is terrible, even though the what might be great, right? Like they're exceeding sales numbers, but the way they do that is by barking at and yelling at or diminishing people on their team. So even the folks who were poor leaders that I might have had compel me to think, hey, this could be done better. And then, of course, just amazing leaders I've had. I thought, gosh, everybody should have this experience. And the the people that bark at people will know that they make sure that the that the the product or the service is at its peak. And when, whenever you said that, that reminded me of Steve Jobs in terms of the way mm-hmm. it's been told he he run he ran Apple in terms of just completely dissing his employees, but he was focused so much on the product that the people mm-hmm. didn't even yeah. it didn't even equate into his his own equation of everything right no emotional intelligence right yeah 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 in terms of emotional intelligence how much do you think a leader should have and is is too much an issue and of course too less is definitely an issue but is having too much emotional intelligence just being too in tune with your team emotionally, could that be a detriment to your You know, I think that I wouldn't define emotional intelligence as being too in tune. I don't think you can have too much emotional intelligence, but the issue would be like, what are you doing with that insight? So there's the part about one, having enough self-awareness of how you're showing up, having enough of awareness about how um, not only in touch with yourself, your own emotions, self-regulation, what triggers you. Also having an understanding around about the people you're around and how are they perceiving you? How are they experiencing you? How do you communicate with them in a way that's effective? So emotional intelligence doesn't mean that you're going to become enmeshed with people. So sometimes when you go over that boundary of being empathetic, you can get enmeshed. And that's when it might become, their issues become, your issues, the fact that Moses's dog died and he now I am having a really terrible day because I'm sad that his dog died too. So there's that, that's being a mesh. It's not having emotional intelligence. It's not understanding boundaries. So you can definitely have some issues when you're not exercising boundaries. And so it's the fact that you have, so you, you're just overloaded with the information to the point where you it's just simply leaking out of you and cannot control the way that it's, yeah. Well, you're enmeshed in terms of their problem becomes your problem. You become overly invested in whatever this issue is in a certain way. So, so that's when we, we have an issue and you can't maintain objectivity or make decisions in certain ways. Yeah. And so that, and so it's not being, it's acting on the the emotional data that you've received in a way that is more, it's too much in terms of the way that- It's you, not having boundaries. Not having boundaries, not having boundaries. You don't know when to, like when, do, when people overshare kind of thing. It's that sort of, you don't know when to stop sharing. Is that what you, what you mean by that? Well, I mean, I think that hits emotional intelligence in terms of not being percept for self-aware, right? Not having self-awareness of, yeah, that was a little TMI right there, right? But enmeshment is a little bit different. 
but all of these hit on the idea of how the quality of your emotional intelligence. Mm-hmm. And so in, in looking at the research about you and your work, uh, one of the things that I came across was the term action bias. And can you explain that for the listeners? And also, can you give an example of when that might be implemented? Yeah. Um, first, I want to say action bias isn't end alone. Like by itself, it's not a bad thing. But action bias is when something is happening, when you're reviewing something, you're just quick to act. Your first bias is to do something about it. So you can imagine in a lot of circumstances, that's a, a positive trait to have. But in some circumstances, it's not if you haven't paused to actually think about consequences or impact. So the way that I uh, talk about it oftentimes in a way that it may not be positive is when leaders are not doing what we talked about before, which is listening. So instead they jump to doing something because there's a presumption, I know the answer. And this is the right thing to do. Instead of pausing to get input from your team or stakeholders or even pausing so that you really understand what the issue is, what the problem is. Sometimes we jump to action because we're like focused on this one thing, but we don't look downstream or upstream to understand cause and effect. So we're constantly reactive, just fixing, fixing, but not taking a beat to understand holistically what's happening. So that can end up being duplicative efforts. That can end up just being ineffective, inefficiency. It can end up actually messing up roles and responsibilities throughout the team because we're jumping in and fixing. And it was really Moses' job to fix it, but I just jumped in and called an ant, called on what to do. But then there's action bias in terms of where sometimes teams can just get analysis paralysis. Just thinking about it, thinking about it, trying to find the right answer while the broken issue is just festering. But we can't move to doing something. But usually I'm talking about action bias in terms of leaders and people just constantly being in reactionary mode, which can lead to burnout. It can lead to an organization that is not inclusive because you're not asking stakeholders and people who are impacted about their perspective. And it just can also end up with a lot of inefficiencies. And so it's acting. So whenever you see information, usually would just act on it, as you said, in, in an instant, rather than just waiting and making sure that, but someone coming to you with the problem instead of you, like firing your employee that caused that issue, you're not listening to the person to understand exactly what was the root cause of that problem and how can it then, not just with that one employee, how can it then be implemented in such a way so that in the future, no one else will ever encounter that sort of situation again. Right, right. Instead of going to the root cause, for sure, for sure. Now, you made me think of something when you just gave that example about terminating an employee as soon as mistakes made and there's a termination. The other danger with action bias is that the folks who will get the short end of the stick, like terminating an employee right away when a mistake is happening, we know It is usually somebody who's going to be a person of color. We know it's usually going to be um, somebody who's a woman. Like we are usually the ones who don't get the benefit of the doubt. Whereas if you're white, if you're straight, if you went to Harvard, you're going to get the halo effect. And that is like the automatic benefit of the doubt based on your affiliations or your identity. So that is another reason why in a lot of cases, action bias needs to be put on a complete there needs to be a pause before something like a termination happens, a judgment about somebody to really be able to unpack where could bias be coming in versus and taking, getting objective data to really understand what happened and why. And so in those situations, as you said, you need to, to take a pause. Is that something that can be implemented just on a like on a global scale or a national scale in terms of if there's an issue and you want to fire someone for what you believe is just cause, you need to wait a period, say 24, 48 hours before you do that? 
Yeah. I think a lot depends on uh, a lot of facts around the situation, but you would want, you know, your HR team or whomever who's reviewing this, who's overseeing employee terms, terminations, I should say, that they are being mindful about understanding and having some accountability and recognizing what happened. That's usually a stop valve, but we know that even in those spaces, the, you know, biases everywhere. Yeah. Discrimination and bias. So if you were, if someone were to say, to fire me for something that I did, like in the, in the heat of the moment, is there something that I can do in order to make sure that they understand the exact parameters of the situation before I am like completely fired? Is there something that I can do as a person that acts and bias is being done against? So if you, you mean, if you're the employee who might be getting fired. Yeah. Okay. So if you're employees, usually organizations have like a grievance process, maybe an appeals process. You would hope that before something gets to a point of termination, that there's things like performance management, there's real time direct feedback that you as employee gets a chance to ask for things like, can I have a specific example? Okay. What could I have done differently? okay, this is what I'm going to do differently. You would want that regular conversation, day-to-day conversation to be happening and not even to just have to wait for annual performance management. That's what we want to see happening. Yeah, that, I mean, that's the case of what's ideal. But I do think that if it gets to a point where, hey, all of a sudden you just roll in and then you're getting fired, there should be a grievance process. If not, outside of working of the there's an EEOC and other steps. And so in terms of action bias being done for good, like like if you you see someone out in the middle of the street, they get hit by a car, you then go out and you you pull them back onto the curb. That that's action bias for good. I'm assuming that's what Yeah, sure, sure. Yeah. Getting static, yeah, move towards action. So yeah danger. Now, are there any situations that you've encountered where it seems that someone is in a situation of danger, action bias is is prevalent, and they are at fault? I guess I'm not thinking about in the realm of leadership, but if I'm just thinking as an attorney, you know, there's you know, it's kind of going, this going down a rabbit hole, probably away from leadership stuff, but in different places where Good Samaritans act, hey, oh man, you moved somebody when you shouldn't have moved them and they were injured, then somebody might have a civil suit of you harmed the person or what have you. I mean, I don't know if that's the kind of situation you're talking about, but that's tort law, kind of a different rabbit hole to go down. Yeah. So has being an attorney helped you in terms of understanding more of the, uh, like the tenants and facets of leadership? Sure. I think that sometimes people are doing this work in equity and leadership work, but they're not as familiar with the law around certain things. So sometimes you might find folks who are see who are named diversity equity inclusion consultants giving advice that is not um going to help the client in terms of thinking about legal parameters so i think that for me i'm thinking about things in a certain context that hopefully serves a client better than just saying hey this is my lived experience and this is what i think should happen versus having a little bit more insight about what's a should or should not or how it might be seen in the eyes of the law. So over the course of your career, both as an attorney and as a professional coach in leadership, have there been some experiences that you've had where both of those careers were in different state of jeopardy for you, or at least you thought that they were in jeopardy. Were there any moments that you thought that you would fail out of 
any one of those? Is there a moment where I felt like I would I was failing when I was an attorney? Yeah. Like failing in my current endeavor? Oh, I mean, I think we always have moments when we're second guessing ourselves, right? I think when I started off, I started off at a big firm and it was really hard, like as a new attorney thinking about, especially in litigation, remembering the filing dates, remembering all these other things. Like I felt like I was waking up sometimes with a panic attack thinking I missed a filing deadline or something. And I think that in those types of environments, like a big firm, it's like, you're only as good as your last mistake, you know? And so there was always just this high drive profession or atmosphere that made you really aware to kind of compelled you to be a perfectionist all the time. So I think that, you know, so I always felt like, you know, am I meant for this? Is it not, you know, is this what I should be doing? I think being in spaces where you're the only one, like the only black person in space, you know, what's, who's not like the others that that can be very um, lonely. And the fact that you have a different perspective, sometimes you can be, you can leave or be in that room thinking I'm wrong because I don't think like these people do. And this is what's being celebrated. And this is what the incentive is. So I think we always have to be very aware of (laughs) messages from a system about us being right or wrong, good or bad, or what have you, because you have to look at what that system is. And of course, if you're the outlier, what's not like the others, you're often going to be the way you think or do things might be counter to the space or the culture. So I certainly had that quite a bit going off as an entrepreneur and building my own business. There was always this, I have two teenage boys. So there's always this idea of making sure that I'm going to meet a bottom line. Am I going to be able to do this? And it's definitely, you know, by the grace of God, it has been going quite well for me. But I think you you have that moment. Many of us in my generation were raised to work at a company, work at a job, have great benefits. Wow, if you get six digits, you're doing really well. So to leave can feel more precarious and more riskier, even though when we work for people, we can be laid off any moment or fired at any moment. We're kind of at their beck and call versus understanding the empowerment of being an entrepreneur and understanding that both both have risks. So understanding what does success for you look like? And for me, it's that idea of defining success on our own terms, right? Yeah. And it's also the, that's interesting in terms of, as you said, you're the only person that's in this space over here. And so you automatically believe that you are in the wrong because you are the only one. You are literally outnumbered in terms of opinion. And so you believe that since you're the minority, you are in the wrong. Or yeah, something's not right. It's flawed with the way you're thinking. So I might be the only one thinking about, say we're talking about financial aid and college education, which was one of the topics or areas that the Gates Foundation worked on. If I'm the only one in that room, we ever had to fill out a FAFSA, a financial aid form. Everybody else had a check written by their parents. And I'm thinking about, oh man, that sounds all good and great, but how do we make sure that they continue to get their financial aid the next year? Just because they got in the first year, how is this going to be paid for? Whereas everybody else in the room is thinking about, it's just a matter of getting accepted so you can get in. I'm thinking, how are they going to pay for this? So my even saying that can make it seem like, ugh, she's, that's not the issue we're talking about. We're talking about getting people in. And I'm thinking, what does it matter if they get in if they can't afford it? But my one divergent perspective based on my lived experience may seem so out to lunch for them because they can't fathom that somebody would need financial aid to be able to stay in school. Yeah. And so it's experience is definitely a major part of this perception of others. And so your experiences, that's all that you have. You have your experiences and you also have things that you have learned throughout the years from interaction with others. Mm-hmm. That's right, Moses. Yeah. 
And so over the course of you getting into the leadership space, have there been any tools or resources that you would say really helped you along the way? Any specific books that you would recommend? Oh man, for leadership, in terms of executive coaching, you know, there's some, I would say if anybody's going into executive coaching leadership to make sure they're going to an accredited, strong coaching program where they actually see the alums from those programs working with the types of clients you'd want to work with, commanding the type of space that you'd want to um, be in. Because I feel like nowadays everybody and their mama says they were like a coach or everybody's a DEI expert or whatever. So I would say, you know, always training and insight is helpful. For books, this is another thing where I feel like there's not enough of books on leadership that are written by people of color. You know, there are some, but I think there's just not enough of them. But there's there's so many folks that you can follow too who are great leadership experts, I think. And I can send you a list of them because I could, the list could go on and on. I can send you a list of folks who are really great. But I do think that if you see folks who are commanding a space or they have types of clients you want want to have they are working with the with issues you want to work in then you follow you know everything from following them on LinkedIn finding out what they're writing there's just so many opportunities in that way so in terms of the pandemic how did that change your operation of of coaching and even in your personal life like you see you have two teenage teenage boys mm-hmm. and how did that pandemic and also your personal and professional life how did the pandemic affect either both both of those uh, Moses it was tough it was tough I mean having the boys I run my business from home anyway and then being here and making sure that the boys are online that they're listening to their teachers and not going off and watching YouTube and video games. Oh man, it was so tough. I felt bad for them because, you know, nobody wants to sign up for eight hours a day of instruction online, much less teenagers and not having social interaction, like real interaction. I felt bad for the teachers because they didn't sign up for that. And some of them had their own kids at home. It was just, oh man, it was a mess. It was terrible. I'm not going to lie, it was really terrible. Me trying to have, you know, coaching sessions with my clients while the boys are over there online because I had to have them within my eyesight so that I could make sure they're doing what they were supposed to be doing. So it was it was tough. I'm not going to lie, it was really tough. I was really grateful when they were back in school. They're like different kids now. You know, they're like totally different. You think about, could you imagine being... 10 and 11 because they're like 12 and 13 now but 10 and 11 and not having any engagement with other kids at all this is like a science experiment like i wonder what's gonna how they're gonna be as adults like two years no like you know social because we were going to school every day right so imagine that have your mom yelling at you in the other room wow it's tough yeah. And so what would you say were the lessons that you that you learned both about running your industry, running your your business and also raising your children? What are some insights that you gleaned that you would that you say today? Like I'll definitely keep those with me for the rest of my life. So I definitely my empathy for people increased. Like, you know, sometimes I'd read those, be in these parent groups and different things and folks would be so mad at the teachers. And I would think these teachers are parents. They're at home dealing with this and they're managing our kids virtually. And I was never really prone to say these teachers are terrible. I thought, thank God, these teachers are willing to still teach like this and they have their kids right there. And I hope that, you know, they, I, w- I hope that they would get a bonus or something for learning a new way of teaching 
So that certainly uh, my empathy grew. I would love to say that my patience increased, but it didn't really. I think I was quicker to become frustrated in a lot of ways, but I think I admired my kids in terms of their willingness every day, day after day to go do something that they had complete disdain for. And I wouldn't have wanted to do it. I couldn't even imagine doing that. So yeah, they were trudging through like troopers. I mean, yeah, I had some moments where I had to be like, look, but, but you know, they didn't have anywhere else they could go right downstairs in the kitchen and go do it, but they did it. Now they may not have been the best at it, but they did. Cause sometimes, you know, we, you know, everybody knows they need that mental health day at work when you're like, I'm not going in there today. I'm not doing it today. But they were day after day showing up. Sometimes that's all you can ask for is for people to show up. Yeah, and what's very, I don't know, fortunate, unfortunate is the extent of technology and also the knowledge that technology has also increased for most people the time that they're awake. And so, like, the worst thing, I don't, but yeah, it was the worst thing, was I'd get an email at, say, 11 o'clock at night from, from a professor saying that something was due the next day. And so, like, I know he's up. He knows that I am up. Mm. So it's like, oh, man, I have to, like, there's no excuse to me not to do it. And so it's just that it's like a 24-7 kind of yeah. Yeah. It was a grind. It was a constant grind. Definitely. Definitely it was. You yeah. didn't even have a commute. You know, you weren't even walking across campus or everything. It was just like, wake up on the screen. <laughs> on the screen was like, yes, barely any separation, right? Yeah. And and it's that, yeah, there was no separation. So there was no, as they say, like work work-life balance kind of thing. You go, you leave your home, you go, you do your job, you come back, the job doesn't follow you home. And so even now with technology, that's still even, the job still can follow you home in bits of the ones and zeros. And it's just a little bit too much. <laughs> just a little bit, yeah. a little bit too much. Yeah. yeah, it was a total grind. It definitely was. And I think that you know, thinking about going back to work now, it's amazing how folks are just trying to jump back into business as usual. I'm like, okay, after COVID, after racial racial reckoning, people are heavy. Think about grief. You think, think about trying to, it's not going to be business as usual. And so many workplaces are trying to do that. And we see that employees are, you know, exercising choice. Great resignation. I don't need to go back here. I need something different. And yet employers, I'm so amazed at how employers, many of them, not all of them, but many of them are trying to go back to business as usual. Yeah. And so even with the business as usual, as you said, there's a push for you want to keep it this way because What's like a very good thing about that is that parents and children were together. And so you, like, as you said, with, with, with your two boys, it's that you got to see like a radical shift in them during that period of time that they were at home with you. And so it wasn't that they were off with, uh, with another adult being taught these things. It's that you were there with them. You made sure like every single day that they were getting the stuff that they had to do done. And it is, but eh, it can be a little bit too much. That's right. Yeah. But yeah, that was, that was, I'd say one of the almost like hidden, hidden benefits of, of lockdown was the togetherness of families and the reconciliation of relationships during that time as well. Yep, that's right. That's right. Yeah. And so in terms of being a leader and being a, a lawyer even, what personal things would you suggest that leaders do in order to be more effective for their team? 
we talked about technology. So in terms of keeping your phone on, is there something that people can do with their phones in order to ensure that they get like the most sleep or they are not constantly bombarded by messages? Are there any techniques that you personally use in order to prevent that or something like that from happening? You know what? I wish I could say that, but I'm an entrepreneur, so I have my own business. So I feel like I am, I probably don't have as good of boundaries as I should. I think probably for me, the big forcing function is my kids. So, you know, I need to stop and do certain things with them. I think if I didn't have the kids around, I'd probably just always be working one, mainly because I really love what I do. So I really love working with my clients and doing different things. And I'm in awe at so many entrepreneurs who say, oh man, I'm up at five and I'm going running and I'm doing this and that because I'm like, wow. And it could be because of the phase of where my business is, but I think to myself, wow, I'm still on, you know, this part about getting things streamlined, the operations the this, the that, um, hiring folks. So I think it, it depends on where you are with your entrepreneurial endeavor. I think actually, Moses, that it also has to do with, you know, how much privilege you have. You know, if I'm a trust fund baby, I can stop working and, you know, at a certain point, knowing somebody else is going to pick it up or the bottom line isn't as important, but I'm not. So my endeavor directly impacts my kids and my home life. So I don't have that same space. So I always wonder when we, you read Entrepreneur Magazine, these folks are like, I get up at five and I go running and I do this. And you hear Elon Musk saying, I read these, blah, blah, and Jeff Bezos. And I'm like, well, I'm not Elon Musk or Jeff Bezos. So I am perpetually strategizing, thinking, making things happen. I try to carve out time, but I'm not working on their same type of program. So I think that that's just a reality of entrepreneurship. So I'm always amazed when folks are like work-life balance as an entrepreneur. Yeah. And I think you're right. I think it is like a, it's one of those things that comes as you progress and later on you get your systems in place, everything becomes streamlined, as you said, and you know, I think it's going to work out so then you can. You can steal time from what you would have been doing, which was writing emails and doing different recordings and talking to different people. And you can then take all those things because you set those up already as your systems. And now you can just like sort of like kick back and maintain it almost. That's right. That's right. You have to get it to that point first. Yep. Yeah. How long would you say it's taken you or do you think that you are right now in your journey to getting to that point? I mean, my revenue has exceeded, you know, in the first year exceeded, you know, the top 3% of entrepreneurs. So, and then even more so when you're thinking about black folks and women, but for me, when I think about the legacy or what I'm trying to build, it's beyond revenue, Right. And thinking about something that's going to fill this niche of leadership development so that when folks are like, who look like us, are looking for an executive coach, they know they're going to get a coach who understands their worldview is not going to be adding extra harm. So some people have coaches who don't look like them and they say, hey, I think that this was like kind of racist or unfair. And then the coach is saying, are you sure that's what happened? (laughs) Or this was kind of sexist. And then the male coach is saying, are you sure that? So I'm trying to make sure that folks have these leadership development access and opportunities that others don't or that normally we don't have access to want to have the googles and all these different clients of mine were fortune 50 clients for them to have people who look like us who are delivering high quality leadership so i'm like well when when is that done right probably not going to be you know not going to just be automatically turned tomorrow but grateful to be in these spaces to be able to do this work but then you know maybe I'll get sick of it and I'm like now I want to do something different but I think for now you know I have a ways to go yeah well, that's good you're not going to get bored so that's good yes right I can always switch to something else right that's the beauty yeah. of having your own thing yeah 
it, it, that is one of the the greatest perks is that like yes. being like lean and mean and small and you can change around, do whatever you need to in order to ensure that you are doing what you believe you're supposed to be doing. Yeah. Yeah. Being fulfilled by what you're wanting to do. Absolutely. Well, thank you. I give very much for your time in this conversation. I have a question for you. And that is who has been an influential black figure, whether historical or <clears throat> fictional in your life that you would say you would look up to or think about during times of, of crisis and also in times of celebration? Oh, man. I think about definitely, my, I, I wasn't joking when I said my high school guidance counselor, Josephine Ewing, she's like a second mom to me. And, you know, when I transferred schools and we moved up north, they were saying, oh, she shouldn't be in gifted classes. She shouldn't be whatever. And even though I had been in the South and she like kind of stood her ground and she was the only black leadership admin person at that school. And also she navigated the college process with me. So she really did change the trajectory of my, what could have been my, you know, with my life. And I'm still in touch with her today. I think historic figures, man, there's just so many. Even to now, when we think about Katanji Brown-Jackson, right? And we look at how she showed up. So, I mean, there's just so many people. I don't even know where I would go. I mean, I think about even Lizzo and body positive and just being bold about being who you are and where you are, like unapologetically. So we can go on at Lonnie Guineer, Professor Lonnie Guineer from Harvard, she just passed, Bell Hooks, who just passed. So there's just Maya Angelou, who's not here, but just so many people who were first, who were vulnerable in spaces, who were onlys, and still stayed in touch with who they were emotionally. And found a lot of language to also give the rest of us permission and space to express things with words that were our own, right? So that their writing, their brilliance allowed us to cite people who look like us versus what's already been out here. Nicole Hannah-Jones. So I, I just think that, gosh, we could just go on forever. So there's so many people. Questlove, his book too, was really amazing. And well, to talk about the Oscars, you got an Oscar, but we're not going to talk about the rest of the stuff in the Oscars. <laughs> so there's just so many people, you know, creatives, Nicholas Smith, who's an artist. I could just go on and on. I just, but I think that Black creatives and intellectuals have just really allowed me to not be trapped in what I experienced, but given me words for it for things that I didn't have words to figure out myself. But then I'm like, oh my gosh, that's exactly what I'm talking about. What Audre Lorde said, that's exactly right. Or, you know, that I think that it helps us not feel alone when people can have experienced what we experienced and put words around it. You know, such validation and affirmation. Yeah, all incredible people. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so I have one more question for you, and that yeah. is, uh, if you had the ability to send a worldwide text, what would your message be? I don't know, gosh. I don't know, it'd be some validation point about people of color or Blackness, it would be a validation point for many of us who don't get validation other ways. But I don't know what it would be. I don't know what the message would be. That's big. Maybe it's that you're not alone. I don't know. That's a good one. And that's one of those prosaic kind of, kind of things. Because yeah. you're not alone. So many different levels on that. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, thank you, Aiko, for this incredible conversation. 
where can the listeners go to hear more about you and your work? Follow us on Instagram at rare, R-A-R-E underscore coach. LinkedIn, of course, under my name or our website, which is rarecoaching.net. Well, thank you, Aiko, for this conversation. It's been a pleasure speaking with you. Thank you for having me, Moses. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of the Black Gold Podcast. In order for these wonderful stories of these wonderful people to go out to many other wonderful people, please make sure to subscribe to the show and to also rate the show on iTunes or on Spotify in order for more people to listen and to learn from these incredible and amazing stories. If you want to get more out of the podcast, go ahead and visit www.blackgoldpod.com where I go into detail within my MTY midweek newsletter that I deliver to you every Wednesday. And in it, I dissect different aspects of episodes. And I also share with you different tips and tricks you can apply to help you grow and improve as an entrepreneur. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Black Gold Podcast. And remember to either find a way or make one.